Thank you, Lori. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for today. We thank you that we can gather uh, around the truth of the gospel and around your word. And we pray that today um, you might take the words that we have sung and the words that we have heard um, from our lips and from our ears and into our lives. And it might transition into lives of, of a living sacrifice. Um, so Lord, we ask that you would speak to us from your word today. Would you take just a moment right where you're seated to ask the Lord to speak to you from his word today? Lord, thanks for your faithfulness to speak to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Yeah, welcome. It's good to be together. It's good to worship the Lord together. Uh, Jared, thank you for leading us in worship today. Um, he's a church planner. He has to do everything. So that's kind of part of it, right? Last week he preached. This week he's leading worship. I don't know what you're doing next week. Kids, maybe? I don't know. Who knows? All of it. Um, but it's great to, yeah, thank you for leading us. Uh, a few years ago, uh, we, uh, actually a number of years ago when I was on staff at our church in Austin, we took um, teams down to Mexico and we would do, we'd build houses, so we'd go down to Mexico, and, and kind of the way it works is we would show up on a Thursday, and we would stay through a Sunday, and in that process, we would build an entire home for a family. Uh, and it was such a, an awesome trip. We would usually take a big team and build three houses, and we would show up on Thursday, and the families were uh, kind of in one spot that they owned, and they would uh, usually have like a lean-to, or they would have some shelters, or some uh, you know, tarp as their shelter. That was basically their home. And by Sunday, they had four walls, a roof, and even some furniture. Uh, and it was always such a, a joy to go and do these trips. But one of my favorite things was to, was to see the response of the families. Because there was so much to this response. I mean, as the families uh, would walk, watch this, this thing happening, we show up, but they don't know us, we don't know them. Uh, they didn't deserve it, they didn't earn it. It's just a gift that's given to them. And, and their response was always so uh, motivating and telling. One, the, the adults, they typically were just paralyzed with emotion. Um, tears often um, as they would come and, and talk to us and they might make lunch for us or, or do something like that just to, you know, say, oh, thank you. They just kept saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because they knew they were going from basically homeless to having a home within one weekend. But the kids, they had a very different response to us showing up. Uh, the kids were immediately like, hey, we want to get to know you and we want to play with you. We want to help. Let's hammer a nail. You know, they were playing with us. And as we started building things, they wanted to engage in it. So they, you know, we built the framing. They're like, how's oh, this framing work? They were like shaking it. And uh, once we got the doors built, they were opening and closing the doors. They're like, hola, hola. You know, it was like, hola, you know, knock on the door. We had, once we had built beds, they would jump on the beds. We were like, we better tighten those a little more. Um, they, they wanted to participate. They recognized, they were saying, this something is this new reality. I want to live in this new reality. Whereas the adults were just, who understood deeply, they were paralyzed by emotion. The kids were like, let me live in this new reality in our new home. And as we transition as a church into Romans 12, as we just heard read from Lori, the, the rest of Romans is a response to Romans 1 through 11. What God has done for us, that God has given us something we did not deserve. We did not earn. He has, by his grace, given us new life. That we, who, wow, that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That we are slaves to sin, but now we're adopted children of God. We, we once were hopeless, but now we have hope. All of that has changed. And because of that, how do we respond? 
And the rest of Romans 12, it's like responding like these kids. It's like, well, I, I want to live it out. I want to live out the truth of what this actually means for us. Not just being paralyzed by emotion, by all that God has done for us, but living it out in this new reality. And so as we saw in Romans 12, uh, I want to read this beautiful verse, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So here he is after saying all that he said in Romans 1 through 11. He says, therefore, in light of all that, I urge you to present your bodies, your whole life as a living sacrifice that our worship is responding as a living sacrifice. Now, he uses a really interesting word here when he says sacrifice. It's a word that, especially for the the Jewish readers at the time, they would have seen this as a callback to Old Testament worship, where they would bring a dead animal to sacrifice as a part of their worship. But this is being turned on its head, because now it's not a dead animal. Now it's a living sacrifice. It is a, it is a life of sacrifice. It is a life of surrender. And, so, and then he also uses this phrase, which is your spiritual worship. And again, he uses, there's a couple different words for worship, but he uses the word worship here that again would have called back to what the priests did, what the Levites did at the time. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying that worship is no longer only when the priests and the Levites bring their sacrifice. Or, or in our case, it's, worship is, is no longer only when we gather to do this, to sing and worship as we typically call it, though it, is, though it includes that. But worship is responding as a living sacrifice. It is laying our entire life down to God. Nothing withheld. The God who has given us everything, we now lay everything down and surrender to him. A living sacrifice, surrendered, submitted to God. He uses this word when uh, it's translated spiritual, but the word is actually logikos. So it's like translated as rational or thoughtful or reasonable or genuine and true. In other words, this is your reasonable act of worship. That if God has given you everything, the only reasonable response, the only rational response is to surrender everything back to him and to lay it down all on the altar Worship, though we tend to think when we use the word worship, it's gathering what we just did when we gather to sing. It is part of it. But worship is a response of our whole life to God. It's a response of a whole life submitted to him as a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice surrendered to him. So how do we do that? And so there's two things in the next verse he says. In verse two, he says... Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so there's two activities here on sort of how do we be a living sacrifice? One's a negative and one's a positive. The negative is do not conform any longer, he says, to the pattern of the world. This is an activity. This is an action of not conforming. This is not passive 
this is not inactive. This takes intentionality. This is saying, I will not conform to the pattern of the world. It's, a, it's like, a, a, like, a, like rapids going down. And we're on a raft on these rapids. This is the pattern of the world. And it's going fast and it's moving somewhere. And unless we take intentionality to get off that raft and put our feet on the ground and walk to the side and grab the side, we will just continue down that rapid. We'll just continue down that river. That this is the pattern of the world. So there's an activity of not conforming, of not living in like this is. And in fact, you could actually translate this phrase, not fashioning yourself to this age, which again sort of brings out this idea of worship, this idolatry kind of language. Not fashioning ourselves, not worshiping what the world worships. Again, this comes back, this not conforming is not just a list of no-nos. It's about what we worship, about what we don't worship. He says, we do not worship what the world worships. Now, we could probably talk for weeks about what the world worships. Um, but we recognize even in ourselves the tendency to do that same thing. Because unless we're intentional, getting off the boat, we will continue down the path. The world, it worships beauty, success, power, sex, comfort, Worships being right and dehumanizing the other opinion. Fundamentally, the, the, the world worships self. And so this act of not conforming means it's going to require, as Kyle was saying earlier, about taking time in this season of Lent and reflection. It's going to require us to reflect and say, okay, Lord, where, where do I need to not conform? Where do I need to get off the, the river, off the rapid? Tim Keller, in his uh, <clears throat> great book on idolatry, he says this about, this about identifying these kinds of things. He says, The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. What do you enjoy daydreaming about, he says. What is it that occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Do you develop potential scenarios about career advancement or material goods, such as a dream home or relationships with a particular person? He says, one or two daydreams do not indicate idolatry, but ask rather, what do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? You see, not conforming is stopping, reflecting, saying, what do I need, what do I need to not conform in? What are the, what's just the pattern that I'm on as I live in this world? It's the intentionality to say, I, I don't want to worship those things. I want to worship God, give my whole life as a living sacrifice. And so the first activity is we do not conform. The second is that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is also active. This, this verb tense could be, it's translated, keep being transformed. It's ongoing. Both of these things are ongoing things. They're not just once. It's a life lived of not conforming and of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And this idea of, we've talked about this in Romans, this consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. Consider yourself, put that into your mind and recognize what we need to know about who God is, not who we are. And, and the mind is in many ways the control center of our attitudes and our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions. We need to renew our mind by reminding ourselves who God is and who we are because of that, as we've just seen for 11 chapters in Romans, and of who we worship. We trans we're transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can worship him. We, we bring into to mind thoughts and people and ideas and the scripture so that it continues to prick our affections for God. 
And he says, to what end? At the end of verse two, he says, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we live as living sacrifices, as we stop worshiping what the world worships, as we renew our minds to continue to be transformed, we get a sense of what the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God is. In fact, over time, it, it, this is a, a long process. But over time, that we see in full color God's design, his desire, his plan, his will on display. And so we respond. Paul says we respond like those kids who start living the reality We live our life as a living sacrifice, surrendering to God, submitting all of our lives to him. But secondly, he says our worship plays out in responding as a humble steward. Again, this is all of life. This is an all of life response. And so if this is an all of life response, then that means that the the way we use our time, our resources, our gifts, our natural abilities, all will be as an act of worship to God. And for the people of God. Let's keep reading. Look with me again uh, in in Romans 12, verse 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And so, what Paul is saying, again, is as our whole life is a living sacrifice, part of that means that we respond as a humble steward of what God has given us. Now, he says, before he gets into the kind of the nitty-gritty of, uh, okay, how do we serve and what ways do we serve, he talks about what characteristic we have in that serving. And it comes with humility. Humility is this constant recognition of the grace of God. I, I like the way he defines it here, to, to not think of ourselves high, more highly than we ought to recognize what God has given us and we want to, uh, we want to live in those gifts and, and activate those and, and engage in those, but not to live higher as if, see, pride says, oh, this is from me. Pride says, oh, this gift, whatever it is, that, that I have attained it and I've perfected it. But humility says, if not for the grace of God, where would we be? How do we serve? How do we give our lives? We use our gifts humbly, but also why? Notice what he says. It's, it's, in, it's intentional. It's really interesting. He says, why do we do this? Because we are one. We are one body. It's for the sake of unity. Now, I'm blown away how much the New Testament talks about unity. Partly because they were people living in a time where everything, they, you think we disagree? They disagreed uh, about everything. And they were called into this new community as Christians to be one body together. The Christ has made them one. The Holy Spirit has made them one. And he has made us one. And so when we think about serving, when we think about using our gifts in the context of the church, when we think about our reasonable act of worship, we're humble stewards of what God has given us for the sake of unity. 
And then he gets into a little bit more about how do we actually serve. Uh, he gives this list, which this list I, here I do not think is uh, comprehensive. In fact, there's four times in the scriptures where you kind of see a similar list of spiritual gifts. And I think um, Paul and three of those and Peter and one of those, I think, are all meant to be examples of the kinds of gifts that, that God may give us that we might return back to use in the context of the church. Uh, and they, they differ, he says, among, they differ, we're all different because they're all from the grace of God. They don't differ in the amount of grace that God has given, but they differ in the fact that they're all given from the grace of God, but they differ so that we, again, can be one and unified. Now, look back with me as he says, uh, as he walks through this list, it's interesting, this list that he picks, because in some ways, again, it's a representative of the gifts that we could have to use. But also, if we think about humility and unity, there's lots of ways that we could use these kinds of gifts, um, not for, with humility and not for unity and not as worship. In fact, he starts with the first one. He says uh, <clears throat> that the gift of prophecy, it must be done according to the faith, according to faith. Most believe that means kind of according to what we believe, the truth of our faith. And the idea here in prophecy, and this is kind of a weird one for us, we're like, what? What do you mean by this gift of prophecy? We tend to think of prophecy, for the most part, as someone who predicts the future. But most of the prophets in the Old Testament did not predict the future. Most of them actually called the people of God in that moment to be strengthened, to repent, or, or to follow the Lord again. And so this idea of the gift of prophecy is a, in fact, it says it in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. So this gift of prophecy is really speaking God's word into people, into one another as a way of building up, as a way of building hope, maybe bringing a rebuke. And so this gift, it must be according to the scriptures, because if it's not, then it will do way more harm than good, as he says, and to the proportion to our faith. He goes on, he says, if your gift is to serve, then serve faithfully, not self-serving, but instead putting others' interest above your own. He says, if your gift is to teach, well, then teach this doesn't have to be to a crowd. Sometimes we think of teaching as, you know, one particular way. Teaching can be, you know, the gift of teaching can be used across the table on a napkin. It can be used in a classroom with kids. It can be used in a small group. The, the gift of teaching is not about building a platform. He says, if the gift is to teach, then just teach. Be faithful to teach the word of God. He goes on, he says, to exhort, exhort, which means that this idea of exhort, exhortation means a word of encouragement and sometimes even rebuke. To do it faithfully to use it, not to wound, but rather to, to build up for their good. If your gift is giving, he says, do it generously. Not to receive something back or to get credit, but just to give generously because no, recognizing everything we have has been given to us by God. And, and a, a thing I want to say about this really quickly is we have a very generous benevolence fund that you have given to, uh, and it's in a really healthy spot. Um, and if you have a need, I, I want you to know that we would love to come alongside you as a church um, and to help potentially in that way. And so just know that that's there. Uh, remember, we're one body. We want to be together in that. Um, if your gift, he says, is leadership, lead with zeal, not lazily or half-heartedly, but with zeal and determination. Again, not misguided zeal, leading people to ourselves, but leading people to follow God. If your gift is acts of mercy, he says, do it with cheerfulness. 
Acts of mercy tends to be those gifts that are um, given uh, to those who are really good at helping with those in need or disenfranchised or the poor. And he says, if you have this gift, don't use this gift because of guilt or not being guilt-based. And don't let this be something that you become judgmental of others or what they're not doing. But instead, do it with cheerfulness, with joy, he says. And so this whole point of all of this list, Paul's saying, if God has given it to you, use it. If God has given you something, a gift, then engage, you know, participate, use that gift for the body of Christ. Now, as I think about this for our church um, at White Rock, um, there's so many people here who are serving week in and week out and using your gifts in the context of our church. It's one, honestly one of my favorite things uh, about our church to see in every different context. You know, uh, we, I get to see it sometimes um, in ways that maybe you guys don't get to see it, which is really fun to see the gifts um, of, of God being used in our church. Uh, but I want to encourage everyone to participate, to engage in this. We do have needs. You've heard we have a lot of kids, maybe. Um, we have a high proportion of kids to adults, so there are needs. And, I, and serving because there's a need is a great thing. It's great. But this passage is saying, serve, engage, because God has made us one. We need you. We need every single one of us serving because we are the body of Christ. That's the way God designed it, that we would be serving and engaging together, again, for the whole, but also as we go back to how it began, it's all a part of our worship. That the way we serve, that the way we use our gifts that God has given us, it's for each other because we're one, but it's also to God as our reasonable response in worship. Uh, you guys prayed for us last week. Thank you for that. We were in Costa Rica, and um, while we were there, we were teaching um, on the doctrine of God. And uh, when uh, we taught for four days on just all the beautiful attributes of God, the, the incommunicable, the communicable. I mean, it was just, it was so fun to teach about all the doctrine of God. After four days of teaching, the last three lectures, only three, were the response to all of this. Like, what do we do? Here we've talked about all of this stuff about who God is. And so the last three lectures, and, and the three lectures are, one was a response of worship. Two was a response of uh, service and uh, love. And three was a response of obedience. I got to go first. And I had worship. And so I talked from this passage and I was sharing and I was like, and I said, the only reasonable response to everything we have done the last four days, the only reasonable response to a God of the universe who has, who has come to this earth for us is worship. And as the translators were saying that, I saw uh, Stephen and Michelle laughing and I was like, why are they laughing? And then I realized, oh, they're laughing because I basically just told them, you don't have to listen to the other two lectures. Mine's done. And then we, you can leave after this. The only reasonable response. But of course, what we're seeing here is that in Romans 12, worship encompasses everything. Of course, it encompasses love and obedience and service because worship is a all of life submission to God. And so I stand by my statement, even though they made fun of me. <laughs> the only reasonable response to the truth of the gospel is all of our life on the altar of God. All of our life in worship, not conforming to the ways of the world, being transformed by the renewing of our mind, and using as humble stewards the gifts that God has given us for one another as a part of our worship to the Lord. Worship, as Paul is saying, is designed as a all of life submission to Him.
Let's pray. Father, we, um, we thank you for this passage. that is both inspiring and convicting. What it would look like to give our whole life to you. And Lord, the minute we read verse one and two, we recognize that we don't, we hold back. So Lord, our, my prayer for us today as we prepare our hearts for communion is just that. As we recognize that you have given us everything while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. We were dead to sin, but now we are alive to God. We were hopeless, but now we have hope. Because of all of that, Lord, may our response be not just once, but always an ongoing response of giving our lives to you and of submitting every part of our life to you. And as we reflect on communion, we're reminded that it is, as he says in the first verse, by the mercies of God, the only reason we can do this is because your mercy, your grace, because of what you have given us that we did not deserve. And now we respond with our lives. And so, Lord, um, would you show us, just show us ways in which we need to not conform to the world? Would you show us ways in which we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind? Would you show us the ways that we need to be humble stewards of the gifts that you've given us, all for your glory, all as a, just a part of our worship? And may that be our ongoing, everyday response to you for what you've given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.